This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland, from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. As we pass the one-year mark of the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the many lessons we have learned is that we are truly in this together and that uplifting our communities helps everyone. That includes immigrants in our communities. Before COVID, we saw people face obstacles when the government did not respect their needs and the police violated their rights through racial profiling. But like everything else, the pandemic has made everything worse. But we have also seen many immigrants working and organizing for their rights and their lives. In particular, women like Sarah Madrano, who took on the Fedrick County Sheriff Jenkins office for racially profiling her to everyday women who work to transform their government and the police so that everyone can fully participate in society regardless of their citizenship or legal status. Today, we talked to Sarah Movahead, ACLU of Maryland board member and founding partner at Movahead and Fisher Law, LLC, and Brian Whitaker of Nixon Peabody, LLP, who represented Sarah Madrano and the RISE Coalition. We'll also hear words from Sarah Madrano and Flora Garay of the Rise Coalition of Western Maryland about the work and advocacy going on in Frederick for the immigrant community. So Sarah, thank you so much for being on Thinking Freely today. So since you're a lawyer, I wanted to get your thoughts on what the impact has been of the 287G program in Frederick, Maryland. That's such a great question. Um, Unfortunately, the impact transcends beyond just those directly aware of it. So even people who don't know the 287G program by name, who don't have any idea of its existence, are very conscious of it subconsciously, I suppose, but through um, the interactions their family members, their loved ones have had with law enforcement. um, And whether or not an individual is conscious of the program, it's Uh, effects are very much present on the day-to-day life of Frederick County residents. So what what ends up happening because of the program is that people who are not priorities, are not criminals, end up getting entangled in the immigration system because of either a very minor traffic offense or a minor crime, um, and unfortunately end up in the whirlwind nightmare that becomes the immigration system. We've had clients with to me, the most bizarre and tragic stories of, for example, somebody making a U-turn at the wrong spot and um, being transferred into ICE custody eventually by local law enforcement because of, you know, a minor traffic mistake. So I'd say it's broad sweeping and unfortunately it's it's very much present, whether conscious or not. And sir, do you think that 287G is useful as a public safety measure, which is what many sheriffs and other politicians have claimed. In practice, you know, I I don't see it having the effect that it's touted to have comparing Frederick to its neighboring counties who don't have 287G in in place. And just looking at the rates of crime, it's, in my opinion, not not effective. My My other question for you was, in your experience, what are some reasons why people who are undocumented are afraid to work with the police? Unfortunately, especially in a place like Frederick, um, where not just because of the 287G program, but just 
the community sentiment towards immigrants exists. There's a fear of turning to law enforcement because somebody reporting a crime against them has the fear that they might then be transferred into immigration custody because of their lack of status, their lack of immigration status. And so because of that, I've had people, you know, tell me personally, I didn't call the police when I was in a violent relationship because I didn't know what would happen to me. I also didn't know what would happen to my children, whether they would be protected or not through the system. And so unfortunately, there is a lot of underreporting going on um, in, I think, immigrant communities generally, but I would say even more so in a county like Frederick, where this program is in place. There's a statute created by Congress, the U-Visa protection that essentially protects victims of crimes who cooperate with law enforcement. This was designed on a national level to protect people who are brave enough to speak out despite the lack of status and in exchange afford them with status in the U.S. It's a very slow process. It can take up to 10 years. So it's not like, you know, you become the victim of a crime and tomorrow you have a green card. It is generally speaking uh, still an arduous process. But the first step in that is that they require a certificate from a local law enforcement agency, basically verifying that you've cooperated with them and have assisted. Unfortunately, this, so this, this program exists for this exact purpose to help people come out of the shadows and report the crimes that they're victims of. In Frederick County, this U visa is extremely underutilized and the state's attorney's office, which has pretty much self-delegated to being the agency responsible for signing these certificates is not using them, not granting them when necessary. And so there are tragic cases of people who have been brave enough to not only, you know, report crimes to the police, but also take the, proceed all the way to the, the trial of that defendant and still at the end be told by the state's attorney's office, your help wasn't helpful enough. We're not going to, in exchange, sign the certificate allowing you to attempt to solicit this U visa with immigration. So there are protections that theoretically are in place, but are just not working the way they should. Yeah, that's heartbreaking to think that you're, you know, you're trying to cooperate with law enforcement and then at, at late, late stage in the game, you'd be told no. Exactly. And it's, you know, after already putting so much on the line, risking your safety, your security, going to court, you know, showing your face in, in, in this very terrifying situation, just to be told at the end, once they've already gotten what they needed from you, which is your, your support in helping prosecute this person and eventually get them convicted to be told, thank you, but you weren't helpful enough. So we're not going to um, sign this certificate allowing you to apply for status with immigration. And Sarah, let me also ask you, does law, like does local law enforcement by law have to work with federal law enforcement when it comes to immigration enforcement? Where is like the line between what local law enforcement has to do versus what they choose to do? Particularly as, they, as their first responsibility is to protecting the public safety of their jurisdiction. It's my understanding that it's um, still discretionary. In other words, they're not mandated to, to transfer someone into ICE custody. But, you know, in practice, I think they they do use that power they have under the agreement. I'll just tell you, I'm pretty sure there's not an obligation that they do it and, and I that it's it's discretionary, but they do. Yeah, they do do it. Thank you. 
And what are some other like common issues that you've seen purely from your clients um, and other trends you've seen from your clients about as they're trying to navigate through the immigration system, which is of non- non-existent or, or is broken, um, depending on how you look at it. What, what are some like some things that you've been seeing to, and how programs like the 287G program either help or probably hurt their efforts? At the end of the day, um, citizens and non-citizens alike, undocumented, documented, people are people. And so we all share many of the same concerns, whether they be health needs, education, housing, And so there's always going to be that undertone of of the same issues that we all face. But I think there is this heightened and added challenge of being either, whether it's you're in deportation proceedings and removal proceedings, or whether it's that you're applying for a case affirmatively with USCIS, regardless of which situation you find yourself in, there's a lot of anxiety that comes with just not knowing what your ultimate status is, not knowing whether the country you came to for protection is actually going to protect you or whether they're going to send you back to your persecutors. But I think uh, on top of that, there's sometimes language barriers, sometimes cultural difficulties coming to a new country where you have, you're not familiar with the language, let alone the complex legal system and kind of being dropped into the system where you're not afforded a free attorney. So you have a right to an attorney, but not one provided by the government. And so somehow having to come up with the fees to find a private attorney or turning to the nonprofits who are doing amazing work with direct advocacy, but unfortunately are so understaffed and unable to provide the representation that, that, that to meet that huge demand that exists for removal defense representation. The, the piece that's not really talked about enough, I think, is the mental health component where just the anxiety of even, even the child being a U.S. citizen, the anxiety of not knowing whether your parents are going to be able to come home from work that day and whether you might suddenly become orphaned by default because your your parents might be de- deported and, and sent back and um, you might be left alone or um, the anxiety of a loved one when their spouse is detained, not knowing when they'd be able to come home, not having the financial support that usually that primary financial provider is giving. I could go on for forever about these challenges, but essentially I think the bottom line is we all face some of the same challenges and it's important to kind of recognize that we're all going through this human struggle. And ultimately, I think what we need is a solution in place that recognizes the common humanity in all of us and that meets the specific needs of the immigrant community, including to me, number one is access to pro bono, low bono counsel that can actually meet the demands, the the huge volume of of need that exists. So Sarah, in your experience, how have you seen women, especially in the federal community, advocate for the immigrant community's rights and their broader humanity? It's been amazing to see, especially in the context of the pandemic, the strong women who have come out from, from the immigrant communities who have come out to support their community at large. This happens very organically at times, but coming from, for example, the PTA, moms who realized that they just weren't getting access to the same information that their fluent English-speaking counterparts were, and so realized that they needed to bring more Spanish language resources to the school and really pushed for that and advocated for it. Um, In the context of the pandemic, 
unfortunately, there just wasn't the right amount of information coming from county government in sharing resources to where to get testing, what the quarantine procedures look like. And so women-led groups came out and demanded that th those resources be met and that void be filled. It's just been beautiful to see that there are really strong women-led groups right now advocating for the needs of the immigrant community, directly impacted people coming out without status, risking a lot when they do so, but coming out and demanding justice, not only for themselves, for their children, but also for their neighbors who are even in even more precarious situations. Can you give an example of, of, of uh, a few women that you've seen that from? Without mentioning names, but I'll talk about a woman named uh, Maria without being uh, more specific, but who has come out very strongly in spreading information to the community through social media and providing the resources that the county should have been providing in the first place, but essentially taking it upon herself to tell people, here's where you can get access to testing, here's where you can come get free food, and really sharing updates with the what has become now a much larger web of, of community members, especially in this really difficult time where people just weren't finding the information they needed. And it, it really is a matter of life or death in those situations. And what would you like lawmakers to know about the immigrant community's needs, particularly as they're considering legislation like the Trust Act this session? I think speaking from someone in Frederick County, having seen 287G not only not work, but lead to stereotyping racial profiling, I think it's really evident that we need something like the Trust Act in place if local governments are going to continue to sign on to these 287G programs. Beyond that, I think it's important for lawmakers to remember that immigrants are humans, and so the needs are beyond just that of immigration rights concerns, but also just human rights, the need for education, the need for housing, the need for health care. And so really looking at holistic perspectives, I think it's really important to listen to what the immigrants are saying, not, not just assume, but truly when making these decisions, hear from the people who are on the ground who are affected by these policies. And I think that you'll hear, they would hear a resounding need for reform on the local state and, and of course, on the federal level. Sarah, thank you so much for being on. Thank you. Really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much for having me, Amber. It's been a pleasure. Next, we'll talk to Brian Whitaker of Nixon Peabody LLP, who represented Sarah Majano. We'll talk to him about the impact of her case, Sarah Majano versus Frederick County Sheriff Chuck Jenkins. So, Brian, thank you so much for being out thinking freely today. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start the conversation by going all the way back to like 2018 and ask you about what happened to a client of ours by the name of Sarah Madrano. Yeah, so Ms. Madrano has lived in the Frederick County community area for about 15 years now. And at the time it was about 13 years and she left her house around 7 p.m. on July 7 of 2018. And she was with her daughter and her two infant grandchildren. And they were driving to a friend's house. And although it was still light outside, she had her headlights turned on on the car. And she was just getting onto US Route 15 near her house. 
And after driving a little bit on Route 15, she noticed that there was a law enforcement vehicle that was following her. Eventually, the Frederick County deputy in the vehicle turned on the lights and pulled her over. And the deputy spoke English. After he came to her window and asked her for her license and registration, which she provided to him. And during the course of that initial encounter with the officer, she asked for a Spanish speaking officer since she doesn't really speak English very well. And, but she does speak Spanish, obviously. And the deputy took her license and registration and returned to his car. And after some additional period of time, another deputy showed up with, and he started talking to her in Spanish. And he uh, told her that she was pulled over because she had a taillight that was burnt out. And she continued to sit there for about an hour until the Spanish speaking deputy came back and gave her a written warning for her tailwright being out and told her essentially that she was free to go, that there was an immigration problem, supposedly. And, but ICE wasn't interested in detaining her. So they let her go with this written warning. And the question was, was this an, a legal encounter? Ultimately, obviously, we concluded it was not. And the that's why we settled it in her favor. And Brian, did at any point in time, did they notify her that they had called ICE in the middle of this, sounds like peaceful, you know, please, please stop? Yes, they did notify her that they had talked to ICE. They indicated that they had talked to ICE and that ICE wasn't interested in detaining her, but there, there was a warrant, uh, an outstanding warrant for her, a civil warrant, in fact. And the administrative warrant was for one of removal, supposedly. And this is a common practice with the Frederick County Sheriff's Department where they call ICE on residents? So my understanding of the way it works in Frederick County is that they have, they use what is called the NCIC database system. And it's the National Crime Information Center database. It's a federal database. And that database includes warrants um, from a variety of jurisdictions including some federal warrants and including some immigration warrants. And traditionally, immigration warrants, particularly civil immigration warrants, were not included in that system. However, after George W. Bush became president after 2001, he started, his administration started including some more immigration warrants into that system. And so those became things, warrants that would be identified when local and law enforcement officers use the database to search people's names for any arrest warrants or other types of warrants in the database. And so Frederick County uses this same database whenever they do any law enforcement throughout the county. And during the course of Ms. Madrano's uh, encounter with Frederick County deputies, and during the course of other law enforcement encounters, uh, encounters that other individuals have had with that law enforcement agency, the individual deputies typically run an NCIC search for the person who they've identified during the course of a law enforcement encounter. And they run the check through that system to see if there are any warrants that pop up. And in the case of Ms. Madrano, they identified one that popped up related to an ICE immigration civil warrant. And that's happened in other cases as well in Frederick County. The most notable one before Ms. Madrano was one of Ms. Roxana Oriana Santos, who was similarly detained based on 
uh, civil immigration warrant that the deputies of Frederick County identified during the course of a different sort of encounter with her. So yes, this was not a unique circumstance related to Ms. Madrano. This is basically a standard or was a standard practice of the Frederick County Deputy Sheriff's Office. And Brian, when um, Sarah Madrano and her daughter got home, um, what did they find with, uh, with their car? Well, prior to being pulled over in that encounter, Ms. Madrano had regularly taken her vehicle in for inspections and for routine maintenance. She had never been told that there were any taillights issue, taillight issues before this encounter with Frederick County in July of 2018. And when she returned to her home after the she was pulled over by the deputies of Frederick County in 2018, she noticed and her daughter noticed that the taillight appeared to be functioning just fine. And in fact, when we later saw the vehicle ourselves, uh, during the course of this investigation, we noticed that it appeared to be functioning just fine. And she had also not had to take it in for any maintenance to fix any of the taillights. So it did appear that the supposed burnt out taillight was not actually true. And Brian, in your opinion, what role did the Federal County um, 287G program have on this case and on this broader, broader issue of being pulled over or being harassed by police? Well, this all sort of dates back to, it's sort of a long story, I apologize. But this all sort of dates back to when Sheriff Jenkins originally became sheriff in Frederick County, which I believe he was first elected in 2006. And he ran his campaign on an anti-immigration platform. He was adamant about being anti-immigrant and trying to enforce immigration laws in Frederick County as much as he possibly could. And he said a variety of inflammatory and racist statements about immigrants that were in the area and in the United States, what he characterized as illegally. And he indicated that he wanted to quote unquote, shoot them all back to where they came from and a variety of other statements. And so when he came in as sheriff after he was elected in 2006, he made it a priority to engage with the federal government to try and participate in any immigration enforcement program that was available. And there were a couple of different options available. There were agreements to house immigration detainees in local jail facilities. And those were done in compliance with or, or in conjunction with ICE. So ICE would pay a certain per diem rate for every detainee that was housed by the Frederick County Sheriff's Office um, for a period of time. And so there was sort of a financial component to this, whereas that would allow the county to be reimbursed this per diem rate, which our understanding based upon subsequent studies is that that per diem rate that they were reimbursed for was actually exceeded the amount of costs that they had to house individuals in the Frederick County Sheriff's Office, uh, in a jail in Frederick County. So there was a financial incentive at that point to engage in immigration enforcement in Frederick County. They had an incentive to try and house as many detainees as they possibly could to get more money reimbursed. The second component was the 287G program, and that sort of fed into it. The 287G component was to enforce immigration in Frederick County, and that was a partnership with ICE as well, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement at the federal level. 
and it was intended to allow local law enforcement agencies, including the Frederick County Sheriff's Office in this particular instance, to deputize certain trained and specifically authorized deputies at the local level for particular immigration enforcement related functions. And when that was initially done, when that agreement was originally reached by the Sheriff's Office in 2008 with ICE, there were two different components of it as well. One of the components was enforcement on the street so they could actually go out and detain individuals that they identified on the street as subject to immigration enforcement. And second was if when they brought individuals back to the Frederick County Jail, they could do searches on them to determine whether or not they were subject to any federal warrants for immigration related purposes. And if they were, they could house them in accordance with the other agreement that they had, of course, for reimbursement of housing immigration detainees. So it's sort of all wrapped up into those two components because those established the baseline for how they were going to aggressively go after immigration immigrants in Frederick County. And it provided an incentive for the sheriff's office in Frederick County to engage in as much immigration enforcement as could, they possibly could. And the other aspect of the 287G program was that they had to provide training to these specifically authorized deputies. Now, with respect to the two deputies that were involved in Ms. Medrano's case, they were, not they were not trained underneath that 287G program and they were not authorized to engage in any actions underneath the 287G program. The problem is, was however, that the sheriff was not providing adequate instruction to deputies who were not trained under that program that they could not engage in immigration enforcement if they were not deputized. So it seemed to be a pattern in practice of the agency and the deputies in the agency to engage in immigration enforcement out on the streets, even though they weren't actually allowed to under the terms of their agreement with ICE. Thank you, thank you for, for actually elaborating on why this case was so needed, physically to hold uh, the Frederick Sheriff's Department accountable, but also I wanted to see if, like, if there were other issues that you noticed over, over the course of the, of the litigation or talking with other community members about other issues that you've seen between the Frederick immigrant community and the Sheriff's Department. Well, during the course of this litigation, with Ms. Matrano included, we uh, identified other individuals who had similar experiences that were in the RISE coalition. And those individuals, I won't identify them on now, but they experienced similar harassment and detentions by law enforcement deputies in the Frederick County. And there's been a long-standing understanding among the immigrant community in particular, because they're most specifically impacted by it, but also amongst a lot of the population in Frederick County that the deputy's office has been profiling individuals, particularly Latinx individuals in Frederick County for immigration enforcement under the guise of the 287G program. And that harassment has been an ongoing experience since 2006 based upon everything that I've seen. And so, Brian, you know, we're fast forwarding to today, to, to 2021, and Sarah Madrano and the Rise Coalition have settled the case. Can you talk about what was included in that settlement and what will be happening as a result of the settlement? I think there's three main components of the settlement. One was that 
the sheriff's office agreed to compensate Ms. Madrona for the damages that she suffered, specifically the emotional trauma that she suffered as a result of this encounter with the sheriff's office. She was paid $25,000 in compensatory damages for her experience. And so that was helpful. And second, and equally as important, we thought, was that the sheriff's office, particularly Sheriff Jenkins himself, issued a public letter of apology uh, addressed to Ms. Madrano, apologizing for the encounter that she experienced, that she was detained for an excessive amount of time, and that there did not appear to be a valid reason for her to be detained, and apologizing for that. And we thought that was a huge step because one, we didn't expect the sheriff would ever issue a public apology. And two, it was a direct and explicit acknowledgement that what had happened to Ms. Madrano was wrong and in fact illegal. Actually, and Brent, can you can you just touch on on that? Because we one the one thing I've I've definitely noticed as in my time of being at the ACLU is you know clients often want public apologies from the people who have violated their rights, and this is not something that normally happens. Can you just talk a little bit about the the unusualness of of that as well? Yeah, I will say that I have I have never seen a um, defendant law enforcement agency issue a similar letter of apology either. It's just not something that happens very often during the course of these types of litigation. To the extent that there is a settlement in these types of cases, generally that settlement simply includes some monetary relief and settlement rather than any sort of direct apology. And this was unprecedented in my experience and I think a, an, amazing, an amazing result for Ms. Medrano and an acknowledgement to the community in general that, that there have been problems and that hopefully they will not happen in the future. And also as a result of the, of the lawsuit settlement, are there other, other things that the Registrar Department has to change or do differently um, moving forward? Yes, so the, there are some changes in policy that have been made recently in conjunction with the prior lawsuit that I mentioned earlier related to Ms. Roxana Oriana Santos. And this is, the two cases are sort of closely related and they sort of overlap in time to a limited extent. But as part of the settlement with Ms. Madrano, the sheriff's office has agreed to annual to increase training of deputies with respect to the fact that they cannot enforce immigration law or attempt to enforce immigration law or even ask about immigration status of an individual during the course of a law enforcement encounter with an individual in Frederick County. And they've committed to doing that training for the onboarding of any new deputies. And they've committed to do that training every single year thereafter. So the hope is, is that that training will be used routinely and regularly by the office to make sure that all the deputies understand what their legal obligations are to comply with the law. And that hopefully experiences like Ms. Madrano's never happen again. And that was sort of implicit in the apology letter to Ms. Madrano. The apology letter indicated that the deputy who pulled Ms. Madrano over was not properly trained. And so the hope is, is that subsequent to Ms. Madrano's encounter and subsequent to this settlement with Ms. Madrano, that there will not be future encounters like this. So apart from that training, the deputy's sheriff's office is also committed to doing some increased reporting on bias-based profiling. 
And that uh, reporting will be available via the website of the Frederick County Sheriff's Office. They'll provide statistics on bias-based profiling, including immigration-related bias-based profiling in Frederick County. And they're also committing to providing custom reports with the contact person if somebody wants to reach out and request a particular statistical analysis based upon demographics in the area and law enforcement by the Frederick County Sheriff's Office. And as part of that, they're also doing annual reporting in their annual, in their every annual report that they issue, they're going to include some of that bias-based profiling data as well. So that it provides more transparency to the Frederick County community to provide a check on whether or not the sheriff's office is actually engaging in policing that appears to be fair based upon statistics. Of course, we all know that statistics aren't the end all be all of whether or not there's racial profiling going on, but it's at least some measure for the community to hold them accountable and some measure to have an, a discussion in the community with the sheriff's office. And in conjunction with that, the sheriff's office has committed to having annual meetings with the community that are open to the public. So community members can come into these meetings every year and listen to the updates that the sheriff's office has about the 287G program and any training that's been going on related to that program and related to the training that I just talked about that the Sheriff's Office has committed to do since Ms. Madrano's lawsuit. And Brian, what have you noticed um, you know, over the course of this case about Sarah Madrano herself and um, her resilience, I'm, I'm guessing, over the course of this process? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. I think that Ms. Madrano is incredibly resilient. I think this was a traumatic event for her um, that really impacted her a lot over the course of the years thereafter, um, since 2018. And I think that participation in this lawsuit was a difficult decision for her because she basically had to come out into the public eye and be a person that was going to say, I'm not going to stand for this, this isn't okay. And that takes an, a, a tremendous amount of courage and resilience. And I was, I've been inspired by her story and by her personally ever since I got involved in the lawsuit in 2018. I think she's an incredible person and I think she has an amazing story to tell. She's a, a great part of the community in Frederick County. She's lived in the area now for 15 plus years. As of the lawsuit, it was about 13 years. And Brian, just um, correct me if I'm wrong, but as a result of coming out, she was putting herself a bit at risk um, because of her status, correct? I think that's right, Amber. I think that she was putting herself at risk in some regards. I think that most people understand that President Trump's administration was very aggressive on immigration enforcement. They were looking for any opportunity to engage in immigration enforcement to the extent that they could and to remove individuals who they perceived as here being here illegally, or even in some cases, individuals that were here illegally. And I think that at the time when she filed this lawsuit, it was a dangerous time in the United States for immigrants, especially ones who may not, might not have full documentation. And I think that was a concern for her and her family. And I think that she took a risk. You know, we're recording this for Women's History Month. And I just also wanted to ask you if you could mention or, or touch on some of the other women that you've seen in the Frederick community who have been particularly in the immigrant community who have been advocating for 
their rights and for their lives and the lives of their communities, particularly over, as over the course of this lawsuit. Yeah, I think I, I briefly mentioned earlier an individual woman named Roxana Oriana Santos, who has lived in the Frederick County area for years now as well, at least as long as uh, Ms. Medrano. And Roxana filed her own lawsuit in 2008 based upon her own experiences with the Frederick County Sheriff's Office. And she, like Ms. Medrano, uh, undertook significant risk by coming forward and bringing her lawsuit. And similarly, I was inspired by her story as well. We helped represent her in the course of her litigation with Frederick County and against the Sheriff's Office in Frederick County. And it took much longer to resolve her case, more than 10 years. Um, but she helped establish uh, legal precedent that made Ms. Madrano's case much easier to require the Frederick County to change its practices. So both of those women, Ms. Madrano and Ms. Oriana Santos, I think are amazing individuals in Frederick County. And I'm truly inspired by everything that they, they've done since their encounters. And unfortunately, they had to go through those experiences. But I think that those experiences um, have shown that they're courageous and amazing women. Thank you, Brian, for talking with us today. Thank you, Amber. Thank you for having me. Next, we'll hear from Flora Garai of the Rise Coalition of Western Maryland about the impact the 287G program has had in Frederick, Maryland. She'll be giving her remarks in both English and Spanish. I'm here to denounce the numerous civil violations that members of the immigrant community in Frederick County have been subject to while under the Sheriff Jenkins control and administration of the 287G program. We have seen a pattern in practice by the Frederick County Sheriff's Office that deliberately discriminates against immigrants of color. What happened to Rosana Orellano Santos in 2008 wasn't warranted. Rosana was simply eating her lunch during her work break when Frederick County Sheriffs illegally detained her and placed her in handcuffs while they investigated her immigration status. What regularly happens to Mr. A.G., another member of the immigrant community, is simply an act of racism by the Frederick County Sheriff's Office. Over the last two years, Mr. A.G. has been stopped at least seven times and questioned about his immigration status because of the color of his skin. This isn't fair and must stop. Racial profiling of immigrants of color is illegal. I really wish that we did not have to be here today. I really wish that Ms. Medrano had never been subject to an illegal seizure by Frederick County Sheriff's Office deputies. Ms. Medrano did nothing wrong on the afternoon of July 7, 2018. Ms. Medrano was simply driving to a friend's house when she was detained with her children in the car for more than an hour. There are no words to comfort and to repair the fear, humiliation, and emotional distress suffered by Ms. Medrano and her children. Because of the legal administration of the 287G program in Frederick County, many undocumented immigrants live in constant fear of deportation and the ultimate separation from their families. The trauma suffered as consequence of the legal acts committed by the Frederick County Sheriff's Office deputies are scarring our children's mental and emotional well-being. No children in Frederick County should have to live under the fear of their parents' deportation, not by the institution that promises to protect and serve all the residents in Frederick County. It is so disturbing to know that Sheriff Jenkins' anti-immigrant riotic has translated into the practice of an anti-immigrant policing in Frederick County. No resident of Frederick County should have to fear reporting crimes because they fear police retaliation. The immigrant communities, like all other communities, deserve the equal protection of the law. I commend our compañera, Ms. Medrano, for standing up for her, for her rights, for the rights of the community members who have been profiled and discriminated against by the Frederick County Sheriff's Office. Ms. Medrano, I want you to know that you are setting the record clear that racial profiling and discrimination by Frederick County Sheriff's Office will not be tolerated. 
Thank you, Ms. Medrano, for your ganas to keep going despite all adversity. Thank you, Ms. Medrano, for all of your tears and all of your courage to stand up for yourself and for your family. We are the Rise Coalition of Western Maryland and we'll continue to fight for the equal and fair treatment of our community members. Thank you. I'm now going to say in Spanish. Mi nombre es Flor Garay. Gracias por la oportunidad de hablar de parte de los miembros de la coalición Levántate. Estoy aquí el día de hoy para denunciar todas las numerosas violaciones civiles a los que han sido sometidos los miembros de la comunidad inmigrante en el condado de Frederick, bajo la administración del programa 287G por el aguacil Jenkins. Hemos visto una práctica por la oficina del aguacil del condado de Frederick que discrimina deliberadamente a los inmigrantes de color. Lo que le sucedió a Roxana Orellano Santos en 2008 fue injustificado. Roxana simplemente estaba almorzando durante su receso laboral cuando el aguacil de la oficina del condado de Frederick la detuvieron ilegalmente y la esposaron mientras investigaban su estado inmigratorio. Lo que sucede regularmente al señor A.G., otro miembro de la comunidad inmigrante, es simplemente un acto racista de parte de la oficina del aguacil del condado de Frederick. Durante los últimos dos años, el señor A.G. ha sido detenido al menos siete veces por aguaciles en Frederick, simplemente por el color de su piel. Es un injusto y debe parar. La discriminación racial de inmigrantes de color es ilegal. Realmente, como desearía que no estuviéramos aquí el día de hoy, que la señora Medrano nunca hubiera sido sometida a una detención ilegal por parte de la oficina de los aguaciles del condado de Frederick, la señora Medrano hizo nada malo en la tarde del 7 de julio del 2018. La señora Medrano simplemente estaba conduciendo hacia la casa de una amiga cuando fue detenida con sus hijos ilegalmente por más de una hora. No existen las palabras para consolar y reparar el miedo, la humillación y la angustia emocional que sufrió y continúa sufriendo la señora Medrano y sus hijos. Debido a la administración ilegal del programa 287G en el condado de Frederick, muchos inmigrantes indocumentados viven con el temor constante de ser deportados y de la separación de nuestros niños. Ningún niño en el condado de Frederick debería de tener que vivir bajo el temor de la deportación de sus padres, no por la institución que promete proteger y servir a todos los residentes del condado de Frederick. Es perturbante saber que la retórica anti-inmigrante del aguacil Jenkins ha traducido en la práctica de vigilancia policial contra los inmigrantes. Ningún residente del condado de Frederick debe tener miedo de denunciar delitos por temor a represalias policiales. Las comunidades de inmigrantes, como todas las demás comunidades, merecen la misma protección bajo la ley. Felicito a nuestra señora compañera, la señora Medrano, por defender sus derechos, los derechos de otros miembros de la comunidad que también han sido perfilados y discriminados por la oficina aguacil del condado de Frederick. Señora Medrano, quiero que usted sepa que hoy es un día muy importante para toda la comunidad inmigrante porque está dejando claro que no toleraremos el perfil racial ni la discriminación de parte de la oficina del aguacil del condado de Frederick. Gracias, señora Medrano, por sus ganas, por seguir adelante a pesar de todas las adversidades. Gracias por todas sus lágrimas y por su coraje por defender y por defender a su familia. Nosotros somos la coalición Levántate y continuaremos luchando por el trato equitativo y justo de todos los miembros de nuestra comunidad. Gracias. Thank you for, for speaking to us in both English and in Spanish. And now we'll be hearing from my colleague, Nadine Milian, who is the communications coordinator at the ACLU of Maryland. She'll be reading Sarah Madrano's words in both English and Spanish. Sarah Madrano said, it's not right what they did to me. I believe there is racism within the police force. It is not just what they are doing against Hispanic people. We are all equal in this country. And I will repeat in Spanish. Hola, soy Nadine Milian, soy la escritora de Club de Maryland. Estoy aquí para leer las palabras de Sarah Medrano. 
Sara Medrano dijo, es injusto lo que hicieron contra mí. Yo creo que hay un racismo dentro de la policía. No es justo lo que están haciendo contra la gente hispana. Todos somos iguales en este país. Gracias. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to leave a review and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. The show was recorded on Piscataway Native American land. This episode was edited by Matt Gannon. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time. <laughs>